chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in our New Testaments. We'll begin by reading Acts 2, starting at verse 38. The sermon is about thankful worship, and that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 2. But before we read God's holy word, let's pray for the Holy Spirit's blessing on our reading and preaching of his word. Dear God, our Father in heaven, we come before you, and we have in our hands a most precious word, your word, the holy scriptures that you in your grace and mercy have given your people to reveal who you are and who Jesus Christ, your son, is. Lord, we desire to learn, we desire to grow in our knowledge and our love for you and in our faith in you. We ask that you will help us. Help us to read and hear your word preached with the illuminating power of your spirit. Bless us, dear God, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. Acts 2, beginning at verse 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And now let's turn to our text, Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Psalm 100, a psalm of thanksgiving. I'm reading from the New King James. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Amen. Please be seated. Worshiping God with thanksgiving. In 1662, the English government imposed a ban on all ministers of the gospel who refused to follow the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and the style and manner of worship that it demanded. And many ministers refused to follow the government and were removed from their pulpits. In total, 
more than 2,500 ministers all across England were affected, including Pastor John Flavel, who ministered in the city of Dartmouth. And we read of John Flavel at this time. When the act of uniformity turned him out with the rest of his non-conforming brethren, he did not thereupon quit his relation to his church. He thought the souls of his flock to be more precious than to be so tamely neglected. He took all opportunities of ministering the word and sacraments to them in private meetings. In those times, Mr. Flavel, being at Exeter, was invited to preach by many good people of that city, who, for safety, chose a forest about three miles from the city to be the place of their assembly, where their meeting was broken up by their enemies by the time the sermon was well begun. Mr. Flavel, by the care of his people, made his escape through the middle of his enraging enemies. And though many of his hearers were taken, carried before Justice Tuckfield, and fined, yet the rest, being nothing discouraged, reassembled and carrying Mr. Flavel to another forest, he preached to them without any disturbance the rest of the sermon. Certainly the history of the church has included extreme measures in order to worship the Lord. These people desired to worship so much that they were willing to meet in a forest and face fines and imprisonment. Why were they so determined to continue to worship the Lord? What was their motivation? Psalm 100 gives us reasons why these English Christians in the 1600s and why Christians in every century should worship the Lord in thankfulness. We first see how worshiping the Lord with thanksgiving. In verses 1 and 2 and verse 4, the psalmist describes how we are to worship the Lord our God. First, we are to make a joyful noise and sing. Our worship is to be characterized with singing and joy. Now, this does not mean there are not times of solemnity and times of contrition before the Lord. But generally, Christian worship should be characterized by joy. The joy of the believer is deep and from the heart because it rests on who God is and what God has done for his people in Jesus Christ. In fact, this joyful worship can only be done by those who have been reconciled with God. Because without so being so reconciled, people remain in a state of enmity, a state of being at odds with God. And that is an impossible situation to be in and to worship joyfully in. Well, here in Psalm 100, worship is described as service in verse 2. It's an interesting word. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. The word serve means labor, work, but with a spirit of joy. The worship that we are to render is not to be toilsome or, or tedious. The term also implies our status as ones who serve. Dear brothers and sisters, we are ones who serve the Lord. That is, we are servants of the Lord. Therefore, the worship we render is to be done according to what God requires, 
and not what we determine that he wants, because servants obey. And this is what motivated the Presbyterian, independent, and Congregationalist ministers who refused to worship the way the Book of Common Prayer outlined in 1662. They believed that the worship demanded of them did not conform to Scripture, and therefore they refused to obey it. For examples of what they protested against included the demand to wear ornate robes in worship, called vestments, and the demand to use only pre-written prayers. Now, pre-written prayers are not wrong, but there ought not to be an imposition on that. God has revealed how we ought to worship, and we must therefore worship in the manner that he declares. The elements in the order of worship here at Reformation, Presbyterian, and Ocean View Church are designed to express and fulfill the worship that God commands of his people. And so we see that worship is to be done joyfully and in obedient service to the Lord. But worship also involves coming into the presence of the Lord himself. We see this in verse 1, come into his presence with singing. And in verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Our God, you see, is not aloof or distant. We remember Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal, saying that maybe Baal was sleeping or on a journey. Well, unlike the idols and the gods conjured up in men's minds, the Lord our God is the living and true God, and he is always attentive to the prayers and to the praises of his people. He calls his people to come into his presence, both as a command and as a gracious invitation. This is a free offer from God. And the worship we engage in is not only a delight on our part, but God himself delights to be worshipped in the presence of his people as well. And that is why he calls his people to come to him in worship with thanksgiving and with praise. And note that these calls to come into God's presence are corporate calls. God is not calling us to worship him here in Psalm 100 as an in an individual context. But he calls us as individuals to worship together in a corporate body of believers. In fact, that's the beauty of being in the South. The term y'all should be in Scripture, shouldn't it? In the Southern version of the New King James. Because the word you here is plural. Well, the emphasis in Scripture is that God's people are to regularly gather to worship the Lord together. We live in a time where many people seem to think it is acceptable to worship the Lord only on their own terms as individuals, or perhaps fellowshipping with friends and such, and they feel that they do not have an obligation to gather with God's people to worship the Lord. Now, some people have no other option due to their circumstances, and we know that. But this is not the ordinary way that God calls in his people to worship him. I know a number of people who do not worship in a church despite sound churches being within easily traveling distance for them. As Christians, it is our duty to make every effort to join a church 
and to worship in a church where the truth of God's word is preached and where they can worship the Lord in truth because God commands it. So in summary, we are to come into the presence of the Lord with joy, with singing and gladness and in a manner which pleases the Lord. And to ensure that our worship is done this way, we must worship in thankfulness. Thanksgiving is the primary and proper response to who our God is. Yes, dear friends, we must thank God for who he is and for what he has done for us in saving us from our sins through his own son, Jesus Christ. If we are thankful, we will worship with joy. If we are thankful, we will worship in the way God desires to be worshipped and how he outlines in Scripture, because we will want to please the Lord in the worship offered to him. And if we are thankful, we will want to come into his presence to worship him together. And this is how Psalm 100 calls on us to show our thankfulness to the Lord, by worshiping his name together. Well, we next see in Psalm 100 why we worship in thankfulness. We have seen that we have been called to worship the Lord God with joy and thankfulness. But what reasons are there to do so presented in this psalm? Psalm 100 goes on to give us several reasons why we should worship the Lord. And all these reasons given in the psalm can be summarized in one word. Covenant. Covenant. In Scripture, the word covenant most often denotes a promise made by God toward mankind, which involves God entering into a relationship with them. And this relationship involves blessings from God, and typically it involves responsibilities on the part of the people. When God created mankind, he made them perfect, very good, is the description in Genesis 1. But they sinned, and they broke that first covenant, the covenant of works, otherwise called the covenant of life, which would have resulted in eternal life for all of mankind. In his grace, God made a second covenant called the covenant of grace. And in the second covenant, God promised to send a mediator, a Messiah who would redeem his people from their sins. And scripture reveals that this redeemer and mediator is Jesus Christ. He is the one promised to come and to save his people. And he did this by becoming a true man, living a righteous and perfect life, and by dying on the cross to pay the penalty of the sins of those who have faith in him. And also by raising from the dead giving them new life. And there is a condition. That's what Jesus did. That's what God did. But there's also a condition that this covenant of grace has in it. God requires of those who are in the covenant of grace, faith. And actually, it's God who supplies that as well as a gift. But the condition of the covenant of grace is faith. To be saved from the just wrath of God, people must have faith in Jesus Christ. We must repent of our sins, which means that people must receive Christ as their Savior and rest in Him alone for salvation. 
And this is the covenant of grace. And this is ultimately the reason given by the psalmist here to worship God. The Lord has entered into a covenant relationship with his people, and they must worship him in thankfulness for all the things he has done for them. And there are three things that the psalmist says which reveals God's covenant with his people as a reason for worship. Perhaps you've thought to yourself, well, Pastor Nyman, this is not in the text. How do you come up with this covenant idea? Well, let's go through it together. The name used by the psalmist here in the psalm to denote God is the Lord. And in most of our translations, it has all capital letters. And this word comes from the Hebrew word normally pronounced Yahweh, while older English translations translated it as Jehovah. It is God's personal covenant name revealed to Israel when he was going to free them from bondage in Egypt, as recorded in Exodus chapter 3. God's personal name is therefore special given especially to God's people to denote a unique and particular relationship that he has with them. And this is still the case today. God's people are the recipients of God's special love shown through Jesus Christ, saving them from their sins. Therefore, the name Lord in Psalm 100 reminds us of God's great covenant faithfulness and love for his people, which is indeed a great reason to worship him. Well, secondly, Psalm 100 reminds us that God created us, and therefore we are his people. We read in verse 3, it is he who made us and not we ourselves. We exist because of God's mighty work of creation. This is an act of power and grace. We have life because of God. And there is more than just physical life referred to when we read of God's creating mankind, because when God created mankind, he entered into a covenant with him, that covenant of life. As mentioned earlier, this covenant of life had the condition of perfect obedience to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this first covenant was gracious and it revealed God as being just, as being fair and good and worthy of joyful and thankful worship. Well, once again, we know the reality of the situation in this world. We talked about this already. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned by eating that forbidden fruit, thereby incurring God's just wrath on themselves and on all other people who come after them through ordinary generation. Yet even in this, God's grace is shown through the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is reflected in verse 3 when the psalmist says, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. The status of God's people is the third reason that the psalmist gives to worship the Lord in thanksgiving. We have the privilege of God's being God's people and of being his sheep in his pasture. Sheep are animals that are all but defenseless, and the need, they need the protection of their shepherd. And isn't that why we pray, dear friends? We also need to be led and protected by the Lord. Sheep need to be led to good pastures and places of rest. Well, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of his sheep. 
And despite our sins, the Lord our God entered into a new covenant with us, the covenant of grace. And through Christ, our good shepherd, we have obtained salvation, freedom from sin and freedom to obey the Lord. We lack no good thing, either materially or spiritually, that our covenant God deems good for us. We have been adopted into God's family. That's why we call him our father and have a promised inheritance in glory with Christ that we already possess and it awaits us. He's preparing mansions in heaven. And these are the good pastures that the Lord has given us. And all of this we have, this extraordinary bounty because of Jesus Christ. He has laid down his life for his sheep and has reconciled us to our God. And this is what we remember when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We remember the death of Christ for us. The reality that through Christ our sins are truly atoned for. For those of us who partake, let us do so then with faith and with thanksgiving. Growing in grace through the supper. Being filled with a love for our great and gracious Savior. When we consider how gracious our God is and his son, Jesus Christ, we understand why the psalmist cries out that we should worship the Lord with a joyful noise, singing gladness and thanksgiving. Coming from Canada, I found it interesting how in the South often there would be a corporate amen after singing. Well, isn't it most appropriate to do that here in Psalm 100? A joyful noise. Well, the covenant of grace initiated by God the Father and fulfilled in God the Son provides all the motive that we need, not only to worship the Lord with great thankfulness in our lives now, but it will be a source of unending wonder and joy for all eternity. And the final aspect of our thankful worship seen in Psalm 100 is who we worship in thanksgiving. We have seen that Psalm 100 encourages us to worship the Lord with thankfulness. We've also seen that this psalm gives us a number of reasons to worship in thanksgiving because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And now we will look into how Psalm 100 describes the Lord God who we are worshiping with thanksgiving. And the psalmist describes the Lord in a number of ways here. And first in verse 3, the psalmist declares, Know that the Lord... He is God. When we remember that the word Lord is the personal name of God, we better understand why the psalmist says that his personal name refers to God himself. In saying this, the psalmist is declaring the Lord to be the true God, the only God, the living God, the God who is both the creator and the king of the universe. And when we consider God, we consider a being who we can understand, but with limitations. God is ultimately great beyond our full comprehension. And we get a sense of this when studying God's attributes. 18th century theologian Petrus van Maastricht wrote about God in volume two of the English translations of his works. And these are the categories that van Maastricht covers about God in about 500 pages of theology. His simplicity, his immutability, his unity, his immensity and omnipresence, his eternity, life and immortality, 
his intellect, knowledge, and wisdom, his truthfulness, faithfulness, will, and affections, his goodness, love, mercy, patience, and clemency, his righteousness, holiness, authority, and power, his all-sufficiency, perfection, majesty, and glory, and finally, his Trinitarian nature being three persons in one essence. And when we consider these categories, are we not amazed at God's attributes, particularly when we understand that they are infinite, having no limitation whatsoever? In fact, consider heaven. That God's attributes, his very being is without limit. We will spend eternity with a new amazed understanding of who God is, and we will never plumb the depths of his glory. Heaven alone with God there is glorious because of who he is. Well, an important reality to consider when discussing the attributes of God is that we must understand that does, God does not merely have those attributes, such as goodness, love, truth, power, like we do. Rather, God is those things in his very essence. For example, God doesn't merely love. He is love. He's the very embodiment of love. And then we understand there is no comparison to God. No one can compare to our great God. He is great in the fullest and truest sense of the word. And clearly then, he is the one we ought to worship. So much of today's worship is centered on mankind. It is seeker-sensitive worship. It is worship designed to be attractive to people and to be targeted at people, to draw them in by that which appeals to their interests and desires. But people, you see, must not be the primary consumer of true worship. Rather, the consumer of our worship is God. We worship God, and it is a blessing to worship God together. It's in its very nature evangelistic. But that's a secondary reality. We worship our God. He is the one who deserves to be worshipped, adored, praised, and thanked, both for what he has done and for who he is. And the interesting thing is that Scripture rightly reveals who the true seeker is. Jesus himself said in John 4, verse 23, But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And here we read that it is actually God who is seeking people to worship him. And that is what we have here in Psalm 100. God is calling on his people to come into his presence and worship him and give him the praise that he is due. Well, we have briefly examined the glory of God in his being. And here in Psalm 100, the psalmist declares some of the attributes of God as reasons to worship God. In verse 5, we read that God is good. His goodness is reflected in the world in which we live. God created the world very good. The world functions well. It is beautiful. It fulfills the purpose for which it was made, namely to provide for the physical needs of mankind and all the creatures, as well as for God's glory. And even the fall into sin has not so cursed the world that it fails to function in this way. 
And when we extend the goodness of the world to ourselves, we also see God's goodness. Our bodies are marvelously designed, for example. When working well, all the organs in our body perform their proper functions and enable us to eat, sleep, drink, move around, and manipulate things. It's so easy to take this for granted, but it's actually quite extraordinary. We also think, we love, we experience emotions, learn information, gain understanding of difficult concepts, and can have faith. And when we take the time to meditate on who we are as people, we join David crying out in Psalm 139, verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. God's goodness is reflected in the practical goodness of the world. And yet, the word good in the Hebrew has the aspect of moral goodness as well. God's goodness extends to the reality that he is entirely righteous, just, and pure. All of his commandments are right, for they, they are of more value than rubies and purer than gold. God is the lawgiver. And it is he who has established what is morally right and wrong in this world. No moral goodness is ultimately to be found outside of God. And this means that anything that people do which violates any command that God gives is sinful and wrong. Now, despite the fact that our society is beginning to call good evil and evil good more and more, God is ultimately the judge in the end. And it is his standard that will be used to determine our eternal future. Knowing that God is good and that we as sinners have violated God's laws, let us then, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, always cling to Jesus Christ, through whom we see the most beautiful expression of God's goodness, so that in him we might be found blameless before God, having been clothed in his righteousness imputed to us. What a wonderful reason, then, to worship the Lord with thanksgiving. Well, along with being God and being good, we read that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. In 1 John 4, verse 8, we read that God is love. And here in our text, God's love is called a steadfast love, which endures forever. God's love is a stable love. We don't always have stable love in our lives, do we, friends? God's love is stable. It never wavers, and it never changes. The love that we have experienced in our lives in his protection over us, and in his hand of mercy on us in Christ, will never fail, it will never waver, and it will never diminish. And this is because of who God is, particularly that he never changes. And we call this his immutability. And this attribute of God is a great source of thankfulness to us. All of God's promises in his word will come to pass. Not one will fail his people. In Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. All then who place their faith in Christ alone and confess him as their Lord and Savior and believe that he arose from the dead will with 100% certainty be saved. A point of comfort for God's people that arises out of the doctrine of God's steadfast love is that his love is not first dependent on us. And praise the Lord for that. We read in 1 John 4 verse 19, we love because he first loved us. 
God's love is first and is from all eternity. Long before we existed, we were the objects of God's love. And if this was not so, then Christ could not have taken our sins and paid for them on the cross over 2,000 years ago. God loved us first, and without his intervention in our lives first, we would still be haters of God because of our fallen nature. Oh, dear congregation of the Lord, when you sin, when you disobey God's commandments, turn to this loving God in repentance. Flee and hate your sin and turn to your Father in heaven seeking pardon in Christ. If you come to him in confession and and in repentance, he will never turn you away because he has made a covenant and he will not break it. God's steadfast love is a great comfort to us. It is a rock to us. And Jesus calls all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and he will give them rest. Oh, dear friends, make repentance a daily practice in your life. Plead for mercy at the throne of grace and you will find forgiveness. You will find that mercy and strength for holy living. The steadfast love of God is a cause for our thankful worship. And the final attribute of God that Psalm 100 declares is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness endures forever to all generations. The Lord has given and covenant promises to his people to save them in Christ and to never leave them nor forsake them and to teach them his ways and these he will keep forever. We read in Colossians 1, verses 12 to 14, that in Christ, God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance with the saints in light and has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These are beautiful truths, ones that we ought to meditate on and delight in. And they extend from one generation to the next because of God's covenant faithfulness. We read in a sermon delivered on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, that we we began reading with uh, before we read Psalm 100. I'll read verses 38 and 39 again. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God calls children, often children of believers, to be the recipients of his special saving grace. What a wonderful reason to praise the Lord, that he calls many generations of his people to come and receive the grace he offers. What a motive then to teach our children and our grandchildren of the Lord and to live out his goodness and covenant faithfulness in our lives. What a motive to continue to pray for our family and our friends who are not living in submission to the Lord's will. The Lord is powerful and gracious to save, and each one of us is an example of that very reality. Well, like our English brethren in the 1600s, we have many, many reasons to worship the Lord our God with thankfulness today. And like our spiritual forefathers, let us do so with great gladness 
making joyful noises, coming before him with singing. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear God, you are so good, so mighty, and so wonderful to us, your covenant people. We ask that you will help us indeed to grow in our worship, that we would worship with less and less bothers of the world, and our hearts and minds would more and more delight to come into your presence with your people. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful psalm. Thank you for the encouragement that we have to worship you in spirit and in truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.